Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. <laughs> was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hey, have you had a nice break? I have had a nice break. I drove to Portugal in an electric car, so I'm feeling quite green. And I'm green with envy <laughs> because I, I think my carbon footprint's pretty bad right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, your carbon heels. <laughs> but uh, we, we, it was nice to take a break, but I've sort of felt weird that there was no new rock on tours. And, and I like this new video thing that's been going on that our producer Ben has organised. You can watch us now, some of the old ones, up on, on YouTube, can't you? You can, yeah, which a lot of people were asking for. They're not whole episodes. I don't know how long are they. They're 20 minutes, I right, think. Right, right. Yeah. But some good stuff you get to see inside our boudoirs or our studios, anyway. So, but today, our first guest of season two. First guest is Ian Anderson. I mean, come on. I know, Jethro Tull. What did he mean to you as a, as a teenager? One of the first sort of rock things I saw on TV was Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die. It was in 1977, wasn't it? Some yeah, BBC yeah. thing, yeah. Thick as a Brick was big in our house. My brother and I, we love that. I still love it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic record. It's an incredibly um, complex record, also with that incredible sleeve. And I often wonder if I did, if, did you ever know the Framley Examiner, the website? It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. It was, uh, it was a spoof local paper. And I just wonder if that came from Thick as a Brick. Ah, yeah, maybe. I mean, there was so much to read. I don't know whether I read it all as a kid. There's all, every detail in it is written by, you know, included the small ads, is written by members of the band. And it's yeah. an entire newspaper, isn't it? And of course, Aqualung was, was massive. And Locomotive Breath, what a track that was. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's with great pleasure that we welcome Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Welcome to Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Remember me? 
I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. The two, two get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. It's very, very unnerving seeing people with their guitars and, and <laughs> instruments in the background. All you can see of my background is a spare room at the top floor of a house where no yeah, one that, can hear But us. that might be your flute cupboard. <laughs> well, it could be. In fact, I do have my flute with me because I was uh, doing a little bit of preparation yesterday to prepare myself for tomorrow's full rehearsal. Well, if you feel like blasting a, a few licks, then... Yeah. <laughs> It's three floors away from us, <laughs> and I'm when, too old to manage, you know, six flights of stairs. When you say uh, your flute, it, does that mean do you have sort of the flute, or are you a man of many flutes? Well, I suppose I'm a man of many flutes in the sense that I do technically own quite a few yeah. of them. But um, I mean, unlike my my old friend James Galway, the man with the golden oh, yeah. flute, I'm the man with the second-hand flute. Well, originally kind of the lowest form of student model flutes, but uh, these days I play, a, I just play a silver flute that is a concert flute of not such huge cost that it's going to break my heart or my pocket if it gets nicked um, oh. in a parking lot or in a, in a busy suburb of... Uh, some European country when I'm in search of the worst Indian restaurant in town. I, they mug me for my flute. I shall cheerfully say goodbye and go to the nearest music store and buy another one. I want to get to the Indian restaurant thing, by the way, at some point. That's something that Kay, I saw in an old interview, which does interest me. But do you not have sort of flute companies, whoever they are these days, I don't know, Boozy and Hawks, sort of offering you great signature Ian Anderson Vessels. Well, well therein, therein lies the truth. If, if I was a humble bass player, such as yourself, or a <laughs> guitarist, then I would be uh, probably able to get freebies left, right, and centre. But uh, no, flute, you know, the, the top end of the flute market, nobody gets free flutes. I mean, James Galway proudly says, and I, I have no reason to disbelieve him, that, that he has paid in full the full list price for the you know, forty, fifty thousand dollar flutes that he plays, and um, I think, in a, in a sense, it's a bit of a badge of honour that you you pay for instruments that are not being mass manufactured; they're yeah. being handmade, and, and you know, that those people or companies can't afford to give them away. So they're very happy to have you know that endorsement, and you might just jump the queue if you had to have your flute repadded or um, <laughs> polished up nicely for the you know, for the next gig. But um, otherwise, no, I think, you you know, you, we will pay in full for our instruments. Because this is what's extraordinary, right? So I'm a, maybe I'm 13 years old and, you know, the guitar is the weapon of choice for most rock bands. Mm -hmm. And it's what's turning me on as a kid. But suddenly I'm getting into what you're doing and the flute I mean, there was nobody out there. This, there was no one else that was doing anything comparable. But you somehow made it the weapon of your choice, didn't you? And it became a kind of baton that you led the band with, as well as attacked the audience with at times, and then played the most, some of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Ah, well, that came late in the sentence. I thought you were finding a roundabout way of saying I waved the damn thing around in order to avoid showing how bad I was at playing it, which is partly the truth. I wasn't alone, so I don't want to take the credit of being the 
originator of uh, the flute in rock music, but I, I guess I became the best known one fairly quickly. But when I started playing, Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues played the flute. Chris Wood yeah. of Traffic played the flute. Of course. Yeah. And of course, there was a, a legion of jazz musicians, not rock musicians, but jazz musicians who for whom the flute was a second instrument, really, because they were tenor sax players. And therefore, it was the same fingering, more or less. And uh, so it was, a, it was a second instrument. And then occasionally people like Roland Kirk made it, uh, pushed it to the fore rather more in, than others and made an excellent album, which I think I've been playing the flute for about two months. I think we probably on our third or fourth show at the Marquee Club when an old friend came to the gig and, and showed me or told me of an album he just bought by Roland Kirk called I Talk With The Spirits. And uh, he said, uh, oh, you, you've got to come and listen to this because he sounds just like you. Well, of course, that was a polite thing to say because everybody else thought, well, I sound like him, which was, you know, perhaps coincidence in the first place. But when I listened to the album, I picked up on a tune called Serenade to a Cuckoo, which I introduced fairly quickly into our early shows at the Marquee Club and other places, and it became a bit of a party piece. So that clinched the Roland Kirk relationship. But the whole thing of singing and playing at the same time, it's legions old. I, I used to do that when I played guitar, you know, at the age of 17. I used to sing and along with playing, you know, simple blues guitar solos. And uh, I can remember <clears throat> even playing a tin whistle and sort of humming along at the same time as blowing it. It was scat singing, you know, pianists did it. And um, saxophone players growled into their instrument when they played. So it's, it's an age old technique. Roland was just the guy who made it uh, something of an art form. He used to do things like to do political he, statements, didn't he? And he, he was an angry man. Yeah, he. he didn't he, he play he, two saxes at once? Was that him? Well, actually, he went yeah. as far as playing three. Of three. Them. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's quite a mouthful, and uh, yeah, he was an angry man. And in fact, we we played together. I think one of the very first shows we did in the USA in 1969 was the Newport Jazz oh, Festival. Oh wow. I don't know why they invited us, because we were just a fairly embryonic blues band, but we were invited to the uh, to the jazz festival. And then I was appalled when our manager came over and said, oh, Roland Kirk's backstage, he wants to meet you. And because I'd heard stories of, of Roland Kirk being a very angry, you know, just, just a person who really didn't like people of a certain background or age or whatever, you know, he was an angry man. So I was pretty nervous about it, but he was actually sweetness and light. He was very, very polite and very grateful that I'd actually recorded at that point on our first album, his song. And he was, um, you know, far from being scathing or whatever, I think he recognised that, hey, you know, I'm getting paid the royalties. And to this day, his uh, second wife still picks up a royalty check twice a year and is incredibly grateful for a little bit of pin money, which um, comes from there. I suppose when you were... When you started out, the first sort of version of your band, which was, you know, had a much more of a basic blues, American blues feel to it. The flute was a bit of a giveaway as to which way you wanted the band to go. <laughs> this is a much more of a British sounding instrument, isn't it? And because I know that, you know, your sound changed quite drastically after that first album. The flute wasn't exactly a popular choice either with uh, one of our managers chris wright at chrysalis records oh, yeah. as it became a year later 
he thought the flute had no place in a blues band and I should perhaps learn to play, as he put it, a little rhythm keyboards and stand at the back and let Mick Abrahams, a guitar player, be the front man and do the singing. So, um, you know, I said, well, that's very interesting, Chris. <laughs> and uh, let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> but, um, oh, and then I think it was Mike Vernon from Blue Horizon Records came along to see Jethro Tull, and I think he felt the same way. It's a band with a flute in it. And he, I think he said, it'll never happen in a million years. It was one of those typical quotes of record company guys. You know, I had to be a little bit thick-skinned and, and self-confident about trying to find a place for the instrument, really, in the context of what we were doing. But it was the audience who clearly made that decision so much easier because they were beginning to respond to the fact that we weren't just like all the other blues bands. We weren't Chicken Shack or Savoy Brown or Fleetwood Mac or any of those guys. It didn't have a point of difference in the way that Jethro Tull did because we were different. And the flute was the instrument that made it different. And I suppose the little bit of irreverent humour and the not taking ourselves too seriously maybe engendered a bit of um, positive support from audiences. We didn't make it look as if we were the best musicians in the world, which, of course, we couldn't be because every second Wednesday, yes, we're all at the Marquee Club. And, <laughs> you know, you're called The Nice. The Nice. Back in those yeah. days, it was Keith Emerson. So there were plenty of bands, or King Crimson, goodness me, very, very good musicians, if maybe a little noodly in terms of their obsession with, you know, cramming a lot of notes into a, a lot of short bars. But um, Jethro Tull kind of clicked, I think, with, a, with an audience because we weren't too complicated. That came later. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you say. I mean, obviously, Mick Abrahams wanted to stay as a blues-based mm. artist. There was something in your soul that was, you've got Celtic, background and you know your father's from Scotland and you know that must have felt more true to you to have a more British feel there are also these other bands going on which Joe Boyd has nurtured yeah. you know, the incredible string band the Fairport situation there's more there's some folk in the air it's more credible now isn't it were you plugged into that well I wasn't really but I think by 1968 I began to realize from people like Bert Jansch and Roy Harper mm. in particular, that there was a, an element of music that I knew little about, but it rang a few distant bells in my childhood growing up in Scotland because Scottish folk music was not too far away. And, um, I, you know, I had a bit of a twitch in my sporran, uh, something <laughs> I, I needed to scratch. And it was, um, in a way, soothed by incorporating some elements of British music and then European music, because when I began to look at the bigger picture of other ethnic forms of music in different parts of the world, but particularly in Europe, folk music and, of course, classical music, then all of this became a, a heady mix. Probably too many influences for one man to cope with, but that's what I've made a living out of doing for most of my life. And I think drawing upon these sometimes quite disparate sources of musical inspiration is a good thing, but... You've got to be very careful not to just make it a pastiche. It's easy to be in the musical kitchen. And as a chef, you think, oh, I'll have a bit of that, pour some of that in, or oh, some of this, you know, stir it all up. It ends up being an unholy mess. Probably one of the reasons people won't eat anything I cook. Um, <laughs> I made my wife some absolutely authentic New England clam chowder soup, and she wouldn't eat it because she loves clam chowder soup. But because I made it, she assumes it's got some weird stuff in there that she wouldn't like. 
like clams, perhaps. <laughs> because your first album was done, you did it at Sound Techniques Studio, didn't you? Yeah. Because that's where all that folk stuff was happening, wasn't it? That's where Fairport and everyone was working. Yeah. If you mean by that that it was cheap, then yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, that was primarily the reason that we went to Sound Techniques. Yeah. It wasn't because we knew anything about the, the, the studio or the people who worked there or had recorded there. It was simply that right, right. our managers, because we couldn't get a record deal, so they decided to borrow some money and um, from a bank from the National Westminster in Milton Keynes, ah, like a thousand pounds or something, and we made the album. And then they tried to find someone who would take it on and, and release it, which luckily Chris Blackwell of Ireland Records decided to do. And then in, uh, in the USA, we got a deal with um, Reprise Records, which was a division of Warner's, mm -hmm. but um, actually Reprise was set up for Frank Sinatra. And um, that's where we kind of kicked off really worldwide. So it was good, but it was where I learned to hands on, you know, to sort of find out how the recording process worked and the various technical elements that were in place back then. If you go down to one of the record stores, the vinyl stores near where I am in, in Soho, you know, that have got all the rare stuff. On the wall, there's always this copy of This Was, and it's always the okay. most expensive album you can buy. I mean, it beats the Beatles. It beats everything. If you get that island pressing. I only have the measly chrysalis version. <laughs> <laughs> that is still the most sought-after piece of vinyl I think there is in the country. Well, it was a little bit of an odd one because when it came to coming up with an album cover, I, I, uh, I again made myself very unpopular, not only with our managers and record companies, but also with the record stores because they didn't like the idea of an album cover that had a picture of a bunch of old men with, a, with lots of mysterious dogs and had no text. It didn't say Jethro Tull or the name of the album. It was just a, that was the front cover. You know, the rear cover, I agreed we would put the name on, so on the rear cover, it does show another picture, which was taken, a photograph by Brian Ward, I think, one of the publicity ah. photographs we did in the very early days. And for some reason, ah. I had a cut-out fish. I think part of the reason these things worked, it was a little surreal. When I was at art college for a couple of years, like many British contemporaries who became musicians rather than uh, following a painterly trade, I guess we were all a little enraptured by the surrealist movement, particularly... Uh, Magritte. Thus the pipe. Is that why you took on smoking the pipe? It wasn't Magritte's influence, was it? Well, it wasn't. That was actually because our math teacher, Granny Jones, actually encouraged me and John Evans and Geoffrey Hammond to pursue, as a hobby, to pursue music. And our parents wouldn't sign for any higher purchase agreement for us to buy instruments, and Granny secretly did. He put his... Uh, professional reputation and uh, I suppose versus loyalty to his students on the line by signing the agreement you know so he was actually liable if we damaged or ran off with the equipment and we all rather revered him because he was a calm quiet I mean just looked like an absolute stereotypical maths teacher you know and smoked a pipe St. Bruno was his brand. Oh. And so uh, John Evans and I aspired to become pipe smokers and choked to death <laughs> very nearly with St. Bruno flake. Um, anyway, yes, that was the beginning of the pipe smoking. But then it did set Jethro Tull a little bit aside because at one point 
particularly around 72, 73, 74, there were three pipe smoking members of the band. And when it later cropped up in the form of um, Spinal Taps bass player. Of course. Has the Peterson pipe. And I actually interviewed him live on stage in a kind of a talk show, musical show that I was doing in America. He brought his bass. We did the whole Spinal Tap spoof thing, but I was interviewing it and sat him down on the sofa and said, uh, Harry, the one thing I really have always wondered is that um, your character in, in Spinal Tap, you know, has a, a rather odd name. And I just wondered if um, how you came to pick on that name. Was it inspired by something else? And uh, and he said, uh, not really. No, it's just something that, you know, thought up. You know, we're always thinking up kind of crazy ideas. And I said, well, that's really interesting. Uh, may, may I just ask, did you ever have a copy of, uh, have you seen the album Thick as a Brick or A Passion Play? And uh, he said, uh, oh, well, and this is in true Bill Clinton fashion. Oh, well, I might have had a copy, but I never listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because, of course, his character's name was the same as, a, as one of the characters, both on Thick as a Brick and in, on a Passion Play. I think um, it's Derek Small. Derek, Derek Smalls. Smalls. Yes. In my version, it was just Derek Small. But uh, in Harry's version of Derek Smalls, plural. You know, and I actually produced a copy of, of Thick as a Brick and read it out to him, you know. The audience were all laughing and, and Harry was getting a little uncomfortable. And then I said, and the other thing, you know, what odd thing for a, anybody in a rock band to be smoking a, a Peterson pipe, you know? And he said, yeah, well, another one of those things I thought up. And I showed him another picture of three members of Jethro Tull posing with Peterson pipes. <laughs> so I really had him there. It was a glorious moment. Oh, oh, oh there's so much to talk about with you. I mean, because yeah. the other thing is, is Terry Ellis, your manager, he is, and if you look at old footage of Terry talking, he's the manager <laughs> from Spinal Tap, isn't he? I mean, without, Absolutely. Yeah, well, that was based on him. Here's the truth behind that. One of Terry's uh, employees in the management company called Friday Management, this guy who was around for uh, two or three years and, and travelled with Jethro Tull as the kind of tour manager, kind of senior person, uh, he then left, I think, to become the manager of a band called Styx and became a consultant, oh, right. so we're told, to Rob Reiner in the making of the, uh, of oh, the, uh, of the movie. So they probably had a lot of brainstorming sessions and uh, and lots of little scenarios that are, everybody who watches Spinal Tap, or at least any of my peer group who watch Spinal Tap, looks at it and says, hey, that's about us. That happened yeah, to yeah. us. And, and in some cases, they're probably right, you know, with the uh, the Stonehenge gag, for instance. I mean, that clearly was based on a bit of reality. But um, in other cases, you know, we've all got lost in the bowels of some yeah. enormous dome in the USA. <laughs> we can hear the opening music playing and we, we've gone round and come back to the same place again. And we actually can't find how the hell to get from the subterranean walkways into the, into the, the backstage. It's happened to all of us, I'm yeah. sure. But I will have nothing to do with uh, admitting to having a banana down the front of my trousers at airport security. <laughs> Let's just go back to our first album, Ian. Let's yeah. What this showed me as a, as a young man and what this was, you know, evidence of for you, for the rest of your performing career and still going is the theatricality of what you do. Guy and I were watching a very old documentary from 1969 about Jethro Tull just yesterday. Dubbed in German. And um, you already had your theatrical element. It was kind of comic. It was heightened. Mm -hmm. It was like no one else that was around at that time. I mean, if you look at Peter Gabriel, he looks like a shy beast on stage compared to you. You could have been an actor. 
that's for certain. I mean, what you're doing is like Lear's Fool at times. Where did it all come from that? And when did it arrive? Because this is an early documentary. You've got it already nailed. I think all of that began because like so many people who take to the stage, you know, we are very shy people. You know, we're actually uncomfortable in social gatherings. We're nervous. We don't know how to express ourselves. We find a way through via music or becoming a trained thespian, but we're actually overcoming fears and insecurities. And that was very much the case for me. I mean, I was terrified to talk in public, terrified to uh, sing in front of anybody. I was terrified to get on a stage and have people look at me. And after that initial hurdle of, of actually getting out there and playing in front of a, about 30 Roman Catholic schoolgirls at the Holy Family Youth Club in the North Shore of Blackpool at the age of 17, perhaps, maybe just 18. Suddenly I realised, well, I can hide behind this mask of, uh, of confidence and musical bravado. And so it's just something that every night on stage, you add a little bit to it. You, you find what works and what doesn't work. And that's all that it was. It was just really just trying to overcome, you know, the fear and insecurity. And, and I think to a degree, that's probably what still happens today because I'm, you know, I am Kipling's cat who walked by himself. I, I'm not a friendly guy. You know, I'm trying to be polite if people ask me for an autograph or do whatever most of the time. But, you know, I don't have a circle of friends other than the band and the crew and a, a close family. I don't really... I don't really enjoy social gatherings at all. I mean, I hate to eat in company. I eat alone. The restaurant thing, the worst Indian restaurant in town, which is where I go, because there's nobody else eating there. So I eat alone in restaurants <laughs> at, at lunchtime. And then after the show, I take something back and eat it in my hotel room because I, I just don't want to be... I'm just not comfortable being with a lot of people. Never have been. One little thing, it's a tiny little aside, but you were on the rock and roll circus. We were. I mean, isn't uh, that amazing? That was an elite thing, you know. We were asked to do it, I don't think by Mick Jagger or by the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg. Mm. I don't think they knew who Jethro Tull was, but uh, rumour was, or uh, more than rumour, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watt, I think, had perhaps dropped into the Marquee Club and seen Jethro Tull, and they put us forward to be on the show, which was great, except that we didn't have a guitar player at the time, and That's so right, yeah. hence the story of um, a frantic call to Tony Iommi to say, uh, Tony, are you doing anything on Friday and Saturday and Sunday? And he, he jumped in a, on a train or did whatever he did and came down and um, pretended to play the guitar because the, the, yeah, backing, mine, track, yeah. the backing track was uh, oh I didn't realize he's that. he's not really playing well in fact I was live but the other guys were were just miming we couldn't do the thing live which was really humiliating and embarrassing and of course the Who were very live and the Rolling Stones were trying to to regather their performance level again having been off the road and making albums and Brian Jones wasn't in great shape so they, you know they, they were struggling hence. They weren't very happy, or Mick Jagger, it is said, wasn't very happy with the with the final programme, and so it was um, been, yeah. unreleased for many years. Well, until... I thought it was more to do with the Who's sheer magnificence on it. I mean... Well, that's what people said, that they were yeah. upstaged by the Who. I mean, in fact, the Stones were actually pretty good. Jagger right. was great. You know, he was really driving the whole thing. The other guys were a bit like me. I think they felt a bit embarrassed about it all and, you know, some crazy idea conjured up by Mick and the director. 
But, you know, I, I think the end result wasn't so bad, if you can discount the moments when uh, Yoko Ono takes to the stage and starts howling and screaming. And <laughs> I think she came out of a bag or something, didn't she? I mean, it was, yes. we were all just going, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, no. I thought you played a good role in it, in the, it, this sort of pageant feel, this yeah. very British feel, this circus medieval, can I say, use that word? You know, you kind of fitted that, perfectly didn't you that thing that was going on in britain beggar's banquet you know it was very much that vibe that was a great album and one of the yeah. reasons that i found it as an observer because we only had a very small part to play in it having to stay there for the, the full two days of rehearsal and then the the recording day we you know being an observer a fly on the wall watching all of this take place was was you know really quite a place to be uh, in, in the same way as being at the isle of Wight festival uh, a year oh, right. later was uh, you were there and the fact that you had a bit of, you know, half an hour of hard work to do, the rest of it, you could just sit and watch other people. And it was extraordinarily enlightening as to the, the machinations and the complications of either making a television show or, or running a, what turned out to be a disastrous festival, but still one that is writ large in the annals of British festival entertainment. And, you know, hey, I was there. I was on yeah. that stage. Apologising to the audience for waking them up at 10 o'clock in the morning because we insisted <laughs> on doing a sound check. In that documentary we watched yesterday uh, from, from, I think it's 69. So it's what 69. Is it Stand Up, the album? Bure, is it Bure? Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Bure. Uh, yeah, Bure, uh, yeah. I mean, your performance of that on that film is yeah. incredible. And you're already introducing Bach into your music. I mean, this is the sort of, dare we use the word, beginning of prog in a way, isn't it? Now, I think that the beginning of, well, the beginning of Prague is probably more 1972, but progressive rock, if we give it its right. rather less um, challenging title, um, controversial <laughs> title, despised title, progressive rock began in 1969 to be recognised because I remember reading for the first time in the British music press this term progressive rock, and it mentioned alongside a few bands Jethro Tull, and I thought... Yeah, that's what we are. I'll have a bit of that. Progressive rock. Yeah, I like that idea. But when you look back uh, just a couple of years further, progressive rock really began, for me, with Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. That was the what? You know, that was the, the movement into something progressive. And again, quite surrealistic at the time, with uh, particularly with Sid Barrett's uh, lyric writing. Um, and in a, in a way, progressive pop began three months earlier with Sgt Pepper. So I think we'd already had big signposts there on the horizon saying, you know, this way, Jethro. <laughs> so this is perhaps what to aspire to. And um... Well, I suppose you had things like Why to Shade a Pale, which is essentially a Bach sequence, isn't it? And then I suppose sort of things like Source... We, we certainly, we certainly uh, yeah. were, were noticing that kind of thing yeah. and, and the use of classical music motifs and pop music was, was not unknown. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ian, I think, you know, what's becoming sort of obvious is how private in many ways you prefer to be i mean there's an extraordinary moment in that 69 documentary stepping into this world of, of mad rock music and being in a band and you have this interview in that documentary and you say you know I, i'm not into this mad free love stuff you know i'm i'm not into the drug stuff you know and i could see that felt like it was coming out of a loyalty for your background okay i'm pushing forward now to ask the kind of question that i want to ask about you as a writer and being in a band so because there's the contradiction you sit at home alone writing your songs you wrote solo most of the of the greatest stuff that Jethro Tull ever did you then have to be in a band and present it to the band it isn't solo it, it's that, how does how does that always feel for you because I know as a writer that was one of my most un, uncomfortable moments saying this is my music I was always embarrassed to uh, with the band to present any of my ideas in a form where they would hear the lyrics that I would actually sing anything. We would just rehearse backing tracks. It was kind of safer. So they would very often not know anything about the the final form of the music because if I did have any lyrics written down, I wasn't going to show them because I was too embarrassed. I was usually too embarrassed to sing anything in the studio when there were any people around. So when I did vocals, it would always be just the engineer and I would work alone in the studio and no hangers on, no band members or managers or whatever. So, you know, I was always very embarrassed and it, it was quite tricky, but I began over the years to evolve a, a better way of doing it. And, and the way things work today with the last few albums is I write the lyrics, everything, you know, obviously on a computer, it's all meticulously presented and and with the, all the basic chords of the music, and I make little demos in which I sort of sing them, whether it's in a hotel room or in a somewhere in my house, just sort of singing quietly just to acoustic guitar and add a bit of flute in. But I actually do the thing now in a way where I really do present the idea. So I want them to understand what the song is about. I want them to understand the lyrics because I know from playing on other people's records, if I don't know what the song is about, I find it very difficult to come up with what I mm-hmm. hope is a sympathetic addition usually on the flute and so I, I have to say would you, would you mind sending me the lyrics I, I can't quite you know make it all out and I think it's very important to try and understand from the writer's point of view what this song is about. I think what I was also noticing in your in your lyrics generally and this is goes back to you being a private person is unlike a lot you know so many people out there writing songs who want to dig into their soul and expose their emotions and talk about the me and the i you know in a way that's you know maybe a little cliche but tends to be about love if you like or hurt and pain you're the narrator in a lot of your songs you're mm. the storyteller you know someone like aqualung comes into your mind you know this tramp and you want to tell us about that. So, okay, maybe you're not the guy who's going to open up and do that, but you're doing something much more original and different and exciting for us. Where did Aqualung begin for you? That's an incredible thing to want to sing about, isn't it? 
The um, the heart on sleeve songs I have a great admiration for when they're beautifully done. People are unveiling their their inner feelings and talking about themselves. It's just something that I'm. I don't think I'm very good at doing that. It's not that I never do it, but I hardly ever do it. Mostly, I'm an observer, but I think that comes from the painterly obsession as a teenager that I, I wanted to paint pictures, showing people, showing a landscape. I wasn't so much interested in pure landscape and I wasn't so much interested in head and shoulder portraiture. I liked the idea of people in a landscape, almost like actors populating a stage, a stage set that they're in a context. They make us want to know more about them. We may not get the full picture. We may be left waiting for Godot. <laughs> There's something quite Beckett about Aquilon. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe there is. But, <laughs> but, but, but I think it is about this observational thing. And you create something that you have seen, for me, always in a visual sense. I always, not always, but nearly always start with a picture in my head. It could be a photograph, could be a painting, could be something I watched on CNN, but it comes from a visual source. That's sort of obvious because I study painting and photography. Then I translate that into music. And then I find that is the way in which there is an immediacy about it and a way of interpreting a picture but not necessarily always giving every little detail and making it a, just a true observational piece. I think you've got to have a little mystery in there to make it enticing, right? I think there are other observational writers around, and I suppose one that springs to mind is, is Bruce Springsteen. I'm not really a Springsteen fan, but when I hear him singing, I see New Jersey. I see the shoreline, I see the bars, I see the... I well, mean, it's the, a way of mythologising actually very dull places. Yeah. and you it's, know, We will meet neath that giant Exxon sign that brings this fair city light. It's a gas station. Yeah, but it has the ring of truth and authenticity yeah. because it's where he grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why it seems to have that simple magnificence about it as, uh, as objective storytelling kind of lyric writing. Aqualung was he hit with this as a real guy, this a real person? Well, it was, a, it was a photograph taken of some, well, particularly this one person living down and out under the archways of some railway in uh, uh, South London somewhere. And it was just something that looked to me like, hey, that's a, an interesting subject. And just having a photograph to work with, you didn't really know how he sounded, what he looked like, how he talked. It, it was take, a photograph taken by my first wife in a very brief marriage when she was studying photography and went off on some assignment to shoot homeless people in South London. I mean, I think Robin Williams depicted a, a very Aqualung-like character in a movie where he played... I mean, it's quite uncanny because he really does... I, I often wonder, did he ever see the you know, the Aqualung album cover or, or no? Mm -hmm. Because he's, that is his character. And, and I think uh, in some of the scenes there where he's... Um, living down and out, it, it had all those elements about it. But, but the song wasn't, you know, it was one of the two occasions I think in my life I sat down with somebody to write lyrics together. Obviously it was a, a bit of a success and some of the lines, you know, were not written by me for sure. Snot running down his nose is not one of my lines. Who, who did you co-write it with? <laughs> with my first wife. Uh -huh. But um, and sure, she's credited on the you know on the cover as, as she. But it is a massive album right now. This song, yeah. you know, really it just breaks you in America as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and it's interesting because it's one of the very few big Jethro Tull songs that don't have a flute in it, 
people often imagine it, well, there must be a flute in there somewhere. Well, there isn't, you know. Locomotive breath is a flute. My God, there's a flute. You know, there's plenty of other material of that album that has flute on it, but uh, no, this one doesn't. But it is a sort of singer-songwriter kind of an album, really, Macquillung in its way. It has some big rock songs. It also has these rather more um, varied kind of songs that you do sit in a, for me, sitting in some holiday in motel in the Midwest of America with a beaten up old Martin guitar in my hand, strumming a few chords and putting things together. That's how I wrote songs. I hardly ever wrote songs at home. It was always on tour and I always had a guitar with me. But the cover is, is a depiction of you as Aquilon, isn't it? Well, it's not supposed to be, but you know, secretly Terry Ellis and the painter because a painter took photographs of the band in rehearsal in London. He was a New York-based artist that Terry had seen, I think, because he did something in Time magazine. I think he'd been featured. And so Terry got in touch with this guy and asked him to fly over to the UK and, you know, to do an album cover. And, you know, I remember him coming into rehearsal. I remember we all posed for photographs so that he could illustrate the album cover. But one thing I'd made very clear, this Aqualum character is not, me. This is a song about a, a real person who I gave a nickname to in the song, but it's not me. So I please don't make me the the, the character. But it ended up kind of looking like me. <laughs> well, you know, I used to have the big overcoat, and I used to yeah. kind of be a bit hunched and sort of look a bit manic and weird. At, you know, in the very first shows we did at the Marquee. And um, in fact, if you look back at the early Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten is doing an Ian Anderson. Yeah, that's true. The wide eye thing. Is yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Johnny Rotten, many years later, admitted that Aqualung was for him a seminal album, you know, at least that particular track. And uh, I think he borrowed something from that sort of hunched rather. It's a mixture of fear and aggression the character has. What it does as well is it suddenly makes you Jethro Tull. <laughs> to an American kid who's picking mm. up that album. He sees, you're doing something really clever here. You're embodying the character you're singing about theatrically. So the audience is seeing one and the same, but it's separating you slightly from the band as well. You know, this is why there was a confusion. They thought you must be this guy called Jethro Tull, right? Which one's Jethro? Yeah. You know, but in <laughs> yeah. a way that is kind of where you're going, isn't it, Ian? Because you're going into, and this, you know, this is not a criticism by any means, because I think this is all why you've been so successful in your life. The band changes its lineup a lot. It's suddenly it's become your band more than anything else. And the other guys can be really could really change mm. at any time. Yeah, I'm in a band where they can't, unlike you, just say, let's get rid of the singer. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those situations where I suppose from the earliest day, because I was writing all the music, I was producing the albums after the first couple. And, and so it was a situation really where I suppose I was any character or personality discrepancies between us. Unfortunately, it always meant the other guy had to walk, you know, and I, of course I feel as, as anybody would, you know, there's always a sense of, regret and embarrassment that these things come about but they do you can't expect people to remain together for life you know as football teams change their center forward or whatever they call them these days you know every few months everybody changes including mm -hmm. the manager so why on earth should we expect rock and roll bands to stay together for life you know we're, we're human beings some of us in fact most of the members of Jethro Tull have moved on you know they, they weren't fired there's only actually probably come to mind maybe three or four that were asked to leave or whose relationship you know contractually was not renewed to put it that way but in most cases it was a 
you know, hey, it's been great, I've had a good time, but you know, I want to do my own thing now and write my own songs or or leave music altogether in the case of two or three of them. Mm-hmm. They'd had a great time and still think of it very fondly, but they didn't want to go on being musicians. You know, they had other things that they wanted to do in their lives. And, and you know, that's all quite normal and healthy. But it's a very clever name as well, because it is a guy's name. It's an extraordinary name. You know, it's a piece of history. Yeah, again, and, not and my invention. Yeah, you, you, you didn't know. Did you? It's you with the flute standing on one leg. I mean, that's yeah. the sort of logo of the band. Yeah. I didn't think up the name Jethro Tull. When our booker in the office in London, when we first started, I think we, we were originally, we arrived in London still being called the John Evan Band from Blackpool. That's the winner. Band. <laughs> yeah. If and, only you'd stuck with that. <laughs> and then it became, it was supposed to be Ian Anderson's Bag of Blues, but somebody misprinted it and it became Ian Henderson's Bag of Blues. <laughs> well, we are on this. Miss uh, Spelling, wasn't it true that your first single, The Seven Inch, that came out oh, yes. by Jethro Tone? We're not sure whether it was a typo or whether it was a very careful attempt to release a, a song that we'd recorded as a demo for MGM with a producer by the name of Derek Lawrence. After Jethro Tull had become sort of beginning to get noticed and pick up activity at the, at the Marquee Club, and he released it under the name Jethro Toe because we had no contract with him. And uh, clearly there would have been a bit of a, a right. furore if he'd released it as Jethro Tull, but he kind of got away with it. And it only, I think it probably sold about five and a half copies, you know. I mean, this, this is so wonderful, but we have to talk about Thick as a Brick at some point. Oh, yeah. We've got to get there. Um, and where to begin on this? Because the odd thing about Thick as a Brick, and I've, I have to tell you this, Ian, I felt later on in life disappointed when I read that it was a spoof concept album, because mm. I thought, oh, I really thought it was a concept album. Isn't it both? <laughs> well, it is exactly that. Yeah, yes, please, it is a concept please let it album, be both. But it's, it's through the preposterous notion that a, an eight-year-old boy has, has written these rather bombastic, complicated lyrics. It was formed in many cases by the childhood circumstances of growing up post-war in my era in the 50s and 60s when children's comics were full of references to Jerry, Obviously, mm-hmm. meaning the Germans, yeah, and and they were full of, I mean, absolutely politically incorrect notions and Donner statements. Donner and Blitzen but, got yeah, in we, 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 Yeah, we grew up with all that stuff, and I think we learnt along the way not to take it to heart. You know, just in the same way as we read Rudyard Kipling, you you would mm-hmm. be making allowances, surely, for the fact that this was an era part of colonial Britain, and there are slip-ups there that you think, oh my God, that is so awful that he said that, but. You know, I think you've still got to accept the bigger part of it. Just you've got to do the same thing if you read the Holy Bible. There's a lot of stuff in there that is deeply unpleasant in terms of <laughs> you think modern <laughs> social mores and and uh, you know, with as a break. The point was, it was a, a child presenting his slightly distorted view of the world and being precocious beyond his his years, but talking a, on a meandering array of subjects and. Of course, it's uh, it is a spoof of the concept album as it was becoming known then as prog rock, and um, it attempts sometimes not too convincingly a little bit more of uh, instrumental expertise in terms of arrangements and time signatures and complicated yeah, I mean- issues, but it. Um, you know, it was the right album at the right time. The record company had kittens when they when they heard this, and particularly when I delivered the album cover. But no, you can't do that. You know, I said, yes, we can, because <laughs> some of the album covers were mine. You know, I was the the daddy. Well, 
Martin, was it Martin who said, who said you actually spent more time on the cover than you did on the album? Well, I claim that. Yeah, I think it took three weeks, three weeks to do the album cover By and the two way, weeks to record the album. Because especially with how long albums were taking at that point, because this is an incredibly complex piece of work. But the fact you did it so quickly. The way that it worked is I, I started writing the album. I think the very first opening lines, really don't mind if you sit this one out, which is a great way to start a record. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's, it's giving two fingers yeah. to the to the <laughs> person who just forked out the last few shillings from, the, from his... Yeah, it's the opposite of are you sitting comfortably yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, it began, that, that opening little line, this little motif around an F chord, played as it with a capo on the third fret to make it easier for my fumbling fingers. I just had this, really don't mind if you sit this one out. And I thought, That'll do. That's a start. And then when I got back to England, I then just extrapolated from that notion. And, and then what I would do is I would write the next three or four minutes of music in the morning because I tend to be a morning guy, wake up usually pretty early. And then I would go to meet the other guys at the Rolling Stones rehearsals room, which was a basement, horrible, damp, nasty place somewhere in Bermondsey in South London. And, uh, and then I would try to in part that, that I'd written in the morning to the rest of the band and we would rehearse it. And then the next day, the same thing again, we'd join it onto what we'd done the day before until we, we built up the whole, uh, the whole album really just, it was um, being done very much in real time, you know, writing, rehearsing, recording, writing, rehearsing, recording. And we, when we went into the studio, it was, um, you know, we could have played through like we did on stage. We, we knew intro, how to do it. The intricate sort of the scales and the, whatever's going on instrumentally in the keyboards and the guitars, is that something you would bring in as well, or is that something that the band well, would extrapolate? It, it would depend. I mean, quite a lot of the lines, you know, there's some sort of 5-4 instrumental line, and that's something that, um, I mean, I'm sure that was something I wrote and they had to learn to play that. You know, it's only one more than 4-4, four, four, and anyone can handle <laughs> that. You know, some of the music was was a little more complex, but it's true to say that, on Thick as a Break, on Songs from the Wood and some other records, you know, the band members have come up with elements and, and interpretations of, of the music and come up with their own. I mean, Glenn Cornick, I think, came up with the baseline of living in the past. Brilliant. You know, I didn't write that. That's the bass player's line. It's very, very um, difficult, especially after the fact, to say who wrote what. And, mm -hmm. and what I tried to do, I remember in Songs from the Wood, for example, you know, I was then making meticulous notes from this bit to that bit. Somebody else wrote that line. It wasn't me. You know, so there would be maybe 28 seconds of instrumental music that I didn't write. And so that would be duly noted. And then um, to this day, obviously, the, uh, the mechanical royalties are divided pro rata to whoever came up with some particular lines of music that were strong enough that they would be part of the song as opposed to just some accompaniment. But, you know, somebody comes up with a, no offence to bass players, but, you know, if you've got four strings, and I mean, I played a lot of bass on, on our records. And, yes, uh, you did. But, but yeah, I, yeah. I only ever used two of them. <laughs> so you know, if I come up with something clever on the bass, I'm, you know, I think that's just the bass part, you know. We know our places. But yeah. there's a great bass line and there's a great bass line that is the song. I mean, it's, they're two very different things. Just because. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned earlier, yeah. you mentioned what, uh, Prickle Harms, White A Shade of Pale. And <laughs> many years later, there was a huge dispute between uh, right. Gary Brooks and um, Matthew Fisher, uh, who right, yeah. was excluded from the songwriting. 
And yet quite a bit of that tune is the, the very iconic organ piece, which, of course, owes more than a little to J.S. Bach. But, yeah. And I know that because I had to play that at one point when I was doing a German TV show. And I had to play, they said, we want you to play the organ line on the flute. And so I said, oh, uh, right, okay. So I, I learned that. 25 million people watching this on German TV, big spectacular show. I was playing with Gary Brooker and a house band. No one told me that uh, Fisher was there as well. And he was actually playing the organ. So suddenly I'm playing the organ, but playing it on the flute. And I turn around and it's him, the actual guy. He's there <laughs> playing it too, looking daggers at me because I'm stealing his line, you know. I was, I was asked to do this, I'm sorry. You know, he told me to play it, you know. I'm interested in this, this incredible time. You're making complex music. It's got very little to do with rhythm and blues. It's not very American sounding. And yet you are massive in America. Yeah. And you know, now, you know, to become massive in America, we've all got to go through some sausage factory and come out the same at the other end. What a time that must have been. And what was it that was so... Why did the Americans eat it up in the way they because did? Because we didn't try too hard. We didn't give a toss whether they liked us or not. The die was cast when Cream went to America. They were the liberators. They had the key to this door. And they went on and just did what they did. As it happened, the audience loved them. And they became huge for a couple of years until they folded. And hot on the heels of that, Led Zeppelin barnstormed into America, you know, having just been the new Yardbirds and then changed their name to Led Zeppelin. And they just looked like they didn't care whether you liked them or not. They didn't care whether there was one person in the audience or a thousand people or 10,000. Wouldn't change the way they played. They didn't care. And Jethro Tull came in and did exactly the same thing. We didn't expect to do well in America, yeah. so we didn't care. We just said, well, yeah, you know, this is what we do. We were seeing how this worked on the ground, close up and personal. But so you were very much performing, which is what the Americans love. Is You know, it's the shoegaze of British bands they don't like. <laughs> mm. Well, I know that there have been an, a great number of, you know, revered artists who really, really wanted to be big in America. And it never really worked out for them. You know, maybe it worked out, but not on the same scale as it did in the UK or in, in Europe or in other world territories. And, and, and it's left them with a hole in their career. Mm -hmm. the, the most notable one being dear old Cliff, whose manager, yeah. I remember, called me up once. He said, look, can you help? You know, we've been trying this for years and years and years. And Cliff is just so desperate, you know, while he can still do this, he really, really wants to be big in America. And can you, have you got any ideas? Can you suggest how we can break Cliff finally in America? And I, you know, lamely sort of made some noise about, well, have you tried gospel music or have you tried this or, you know, collaboration with other artists or whatever? Oh yeah, we did that. Yeah, we tried that. You know, and I think the short answer, and I had to, on the one occasion I actually met Cliff Richard and we talked about stuff like that, I could see how much it mattered. But, you know, the point being that if you want it so badly, it's probably yeah, yeah. not going to happen. And if you really just don't care that much, you just sail on through. You know, Cliff also was, you know, God bless him as well, you know, doing stuff that the Americans have. Yeah. yeah. We have loads of that. Yeah. He was you our know, Elvis. I mean, Tommy Steele, who we, we sort of loved because he was a bit outrageous at the time, but he wasn't. I mean, Cliff was the one who came with the, mm. you know, the sneering lip and the wobbly leg. I mean, it was absolutely, of course, he was modelled on, on Elvis or the early Elvis. Cliff didn't really have something to say that was peculiarly British. Some great songs and a great 
obviously the, the Shadows were a great band, but, you know, the Americans already had that with the Ventures and the twangy Fender guitars. So whereas, you know, when Zeppelin roared in, I mean, these guys were from outer space. These were swashbuckling Nordic gods. Forget them. You. I mean, what you were doing as well. I mean, this was the Nordic god. We're talking to him now. I mean, what you were doing on stage was so theatrical and extraordinary. Americans didn't dare do that stuff. And you would, it was a sort of a very British looking culture that you were presenting to them. And I think it was a time when, when they really wanted to connect with that. I think that pretty soon Americans did cotton on to the theatricality of the British band, most notably with Alice Cooper, who was yeah. probably along with Jethro Tull, the first acts to do nationwide tours where we actually had a stage set and, and stuff happened on the stage that wasn't strictly <laughs> within the pantheon of rock and roll. And, um, and then, of course, there were a little, even with Black Sabbath, you know, there was a, a kind of a bit of a pantomime about all of that, too. And I think the Americans picked up on these things. So there, there were gradually evolved a number of much more theatrically minded American acts. Kiss being another example. Prior to that, Captain Beefheart in 1972, right. when he beseeched me to be allowed to come and be a support act on a tour, which I tried to talk him out of. But he really wanted it so badly. And he, I mean, I was a big fan of Beefheart, as many of us yeah. were back then. He, he came around and did the tour, and it was very theatrical, very, mm. you know, it fitted perfectly actually with Thick as a Brick, which was what we were we were doing on a couple of US tours back then. And it was very theatrical and surreal. I thought it fitted perfectly. Probably musically did, except the audience hated Captain Beefheart. They hated Captain Beefheart almost as much as they hated uh, Alex Harvey when he toured with us. Very theatrical, you know, brilliant clothes and yeah. things. But something about Alex just rubbed them up the wrong way. Something about Don Van Vliet rubbed them up the wrong way. And who knows what it was or why it was, but the audiences just didn't connect. They actually. I think the confidence and the slightly pushy nature of Beefheart and of, uh, of Alex Harvey, the audiences, it well, was borderline, I, but then they did things that just turned the audience. Well, can I suggest that it might have something to do with your ability to be complex, but at the same time, intriguing and not yeah, commercial. There's a, something about your voice that's very unique and it, Maybe it's got a little bit of that schoolmaster in it that you spoke about earlier with the, your pipe smoking schoolmaster friend, you know, and some of those other guys you've mentioned, a little bit abrasive. I mean, how with Roxy Music? Roxy Music supported us at Madison Square Gardens. I was a big fan of their first album. I was so pleased that we were going to come do Madison Square Gardens. We had two nights. And I mean, they walked on stage and the audience went, uh, uh, you could hear sort of growling, grumbly noises like my kitten makes when he's just brought in a, a field mouse or a bird or something into the kitchen and you're trying to take it from her. <laughs> so there's this sort of noise going on when Roxy Music uh, took to the stage. And then by the end of the first song, the audience had hated them. And it was really so sad because they were actually really, I loved that. It's probably too loose for your audience. Well, it was, I think, a little bit too dressy, a little bit yeah. too um, fond of themselves, a little preening. I mean, Brian Eno. I mean, frankly, they hated him even more than oh, they hated Peacock Brian Ferry. Point, you know? yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the only time they got this enormous round of applause was in, in desperation when it was at the end of their set. Okay, for our last song, we'd like to play uh, our big hit in England uh, called um, Virginia, Plain. Virginia Plain. And the audience went wild. They were clapping and cheering and jumping up and down. And he thought, oh, finally, we've cracked it with the last song. And you could see they 
launched into a Virginia plane, giving it all they'd got, thinking, finally, we've cracked America. They just failed to register the fact that he'd said, and for our last song, <laughs> more than anybody, I wanted them to succeed. Uh, yeah, there is so much to talk about. I don't know. Why didn't you make Because of Brick 2 a Jethro Tull album? In 2011, I think, was when I started working on this. You know, I had kind of an idea for it that I discussed with a number of people, including... Uh, Derek Shulman, singer of Gentle Giant. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, who now works for a record label. Well, yeah, well, he did at that point. He, well, in fact, he'd sort of semi-retired by then. But he, he came uh, up in our John Bon Jovi. Absolutely, he was yeah. a big wig as an as yeah. a A&R man. Record. Yeah. Not a producer, but as a kind of record company exec who spotted and signed new talent. You should get him on the show. Yeah, no, he's a lovely guy. And um, he was the one who tried to persuade me there should be a thick as a brick too. And I, I, first, of course, I did what I always did and said, no, 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 I can't go back there and revisit that. It was just a one-off thing. Can't... I agreed to meet him and we sort of had a brief lunch somewhere in America. And uh, I was trying to think of all the reasons why it's a bad idea. Either he or I said these words, I wonder what Gerald Bostock, being the name of the fictitious child author of the lyrics, I wonder what Gerald Bostock would be doing today. That was the moment I thought, that's the album. It's whatever it was, uh, 40 years later. Now we've got a guy who's middle-aged. What would he be today? And that's the concept of the album. So I, I started writing down a whole list of possibilities, including, you know, US astronaut, um, movie star, uh, just a list of maybe 10, 12 different occupations where he might have gone on, including having been a total failure in life and, you know, being a down and out and whatever. Aqualung. So, well, exactly. You know, all those things were, were part of the potential scenario. I thought, I can't pick one of these because, you know, I can instantly see there's lots of ways to make that work. And so I thought, well, what about if I pick a few of them? You know, if I pick five or six of these characters and explore the idea of what... What might have happened if things had turned out that way as opposed to a different way? And it was also slightly, slightly um, brought to life by when he left the White House, George Bush wrote a actually very, very poignant and very good uh, autobiography called Decision Points, which was really about all the points in his life where he could have gone this way, but he went that way. And that defined the next stage of his life. He went all the way through to the invasion of Afghanistan and his relationship with Dick Cheney and uh, and so on. It was um, you know, a very good book, but it, again, that chimed with this idea of there being along the way little moments where you, you could take this road or you could take that road. And I look back at my life and I can see several points where that was the case. So I, th I thought that that was fertile ground for a concept album. And I, I have to give Derek credit for uh, part of that idea, because whether it was he or I who said those words, it was, as soon as we said it, whoever did, it was, there we go, that's it, you know, that's what it could be about. But it was an Ian Anderson solo album, not a... Well, it, it, was, it began as that, because I, I thought this is a bit too, at that early point of beginning to evolve the idea, it's to, to call it a Jethro Tull album might be a little bit too, smack too much of being thick as a brick too, and uh, so I thought, I'm going to release this under my own name. But obviously it is alluding to Jethro Tull. But, you know, rather than call it Thick as a Brick 2, it was TAB, T-A-A-B 2. 
which I, you know, I tried to just divorce it a little bit from from being too you know bat out of hell five or rocky nine <laughs> or something. So uh, and of course, uh, and it wasn't a newspaper the cover. It was a it was a website, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that's yeah. right. Yes, of course it was. It was, yeah. it was a, an online sort of parochial newspaper, but in, brought up to date in the present day with, with the same sort of absurd little silly stories, odd characters. But yes, it was the online version of the Thick as a Brick cover. And it was, um, you know, it was a lot of fun doing all of that. But um, I had a feeling that it probably wasn't going to necessarily... Um, ring the right kind of bells with the with the previous members of the band and so I embarked upon writing it all and then decided on that uneasy course of making it a, a solo album that wasn't really a solo album but I'm quite good at making those so I've done more than one solo album that turned out to be more of an well album. yeah A wasn't A the 1980 exactly, yeah, one was yeah. called A because it was your A for Anderson Anderson yeah yeah, not A for Anarchy, which all of our Italian fans thought was the, the reason for the A. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that, that that's just been remixed by Stephen Wilson as, as well, isn't it? He's done a lot. I mean, is it the whole catalogue? I mean, he's done a well, lot. No, no. He started off doing, I think the first one was actually a, a remix of Aqualung. Mm. And um, his name had come up. I was kind of looking online and his name came up as having remixed uh, in the court of the Crimson King, King Crimson. And... Um, and so he, he seemed to have the credentials because I'd heard, not that I never met him, but I'd heard that Robert Fripp was a, you know, a bit of a tricky guy, you know, very much a control freak and things had to be done his way. So I thought, well, if, if he gets on with Stephen Wilson and obviously happy enough to go ahead and do the whole album, then, you know, it's a very good testimony. We, we tossed a couple of tracks to Stephen and said, just do us a rough mix, see, see how you approach it. And it became very obvious that what Stephen did was not radical so much as following very carefully the original album in terms of, for the most part, the, the stereo positioning of, of instruments and the, the relative balances of instruments. What he did was meticulously go through, through all the tracks and tidy them up, clean them up, take out all the clicks and the hisses and the extraneous noises and create a lot more transparency in the music. I was very happy with you know, him proceeding to do the whole album. And then that led on to another one and another one and another one. He's a, he like me is in that throw, in the throes at the moment of trying to get back on the road. So it's a 2022 project for him to do what may well be the last one, which is Broadsword and the Beast, which was from 1982. So it'll, it'll be the, uh, you know, the, the anniversary of that album to be released next year, for which there are a huge number of tracks, many of which have never been released before, that were demos done around that period of time. Talking of this, of great things still being with us, right? Which obviously is why we have you on the show. What's your ambitions, Ian? What, what's your plans for the future, uh, new music, etc.? People in my age probably have two or three things on a bucket list, so to speak, they'd like to try and get done. And I, you know, I did a couple of them. In the last two years, during the the lockdown period, you know, one being the the Jethro Tull biography, which I didn't write, but it was very much, mm -hmm. you know, very heavily involved. And then, uh, or effectively, just as the pandemic was beginning, I think was uh, was a time when it it finally was out there. But um, at the same time, I started working on a book of all the collected lyrics of you know just. 380 pages of uh, whatever, 250 songs or whatever they are. But I've seen you signing those on your Instagram site. 
you know, I had to listen to every single thing I'd ever recorded, not once, twice, three, probably five times. It took a lot of listening to everything I'd ever done, which was in a way I, something I thought would be really excruciating, uh, particularly with some of the things that I felt were, oh, you know, I was young then. <laughs> I'm not going to like it hearing it today. But in fact, you know, I sort of got myself back into that frame of mind when I wrote those songs. And I, in almost all cases, I began to feel quite good about it. There's two or three or five, maybe, that I am truly embarrassed about. But most of them are not, not nearly as bad as I thought they would be. But it did involve really scrutinising everything. So as a project, it took me, I used to think from beginning to end, at least six months working, you know, two or three or four hours a day. I took an enormously long time to get all of that, put it all into the right format, get all the photographs together and, and you know, all the various attempts to, to do the final edition of the book and only to find out that um, it's now been postponed until at the earliest October this year because of the horrible slowdown in international trade. We did the pre-orders back in middle of 2020. And so I feel so embarrassed that we're now... 2020, we're a year later, basically. People are waiting, they've paid the money, you know, and they still haven't got the book. But it, it is coming. It's just that initially all the, you know, materials, even paper, ink, stuff that's supposed to be going around the world. And this book is actually being physically printed or manufactured in China. And so it's been totally messed up by all the world trade, including the Panama Canal blockage, which... Um, the, uh, or the Suez Canal, was it? Where was the... the oh, Suez. Yeah, yeah, Suez We've got to move that boat. Jethro yeah. Tull's lyric books well, are on the- <laughs> <laughs> it, it completely messed up international shipping and so many things it, we're still well, living today, <laughs> even though even though the canal's open and everything's going on. There's this yeah. huge backlog. I mean, you see it when you go in your local supermarket. There is yeah. stuff that you can't get because it's, it's on a boat somewhere and hasn't been shipped yet because of the, the huge backlog. So that, that's the reason I'm being given is, um, is you know, in international trade, international shipping, or everything is being slowed down at the moment. Ian, thank you so much for giving us so much time because your mm. stories are fantastic. Not to be sycophantic because you know that it's been out, but just, just uh, you, you two guys, I know quite well from what you've done and, um, you know, obviously from the more recent uh, Pink Floyd stuff and, uh, and Nick Mason stuff. And, and I and I loved when you, I guess it was your early on entry into the thespian pursuits when you and your brother did the craze. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I, I, you know, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I couldn't actually believe it. I don't, the guys from Spandau. <laughs> How can I do that? You know, and could you even more believe that the guys from Spandau Valley bought Thick as a Brick and Aqualung and loved it as kids? A lot of odd people have, I have to say. Some people who I think... You must be kidding me, you know, you wouldn't. Uh, I, I would have expected Harry Shearer to have a copy of Thick as a Brick and listen to it. But there are other people who I think, what? You know. I just want to give you a quick quote because uh, Nick Cave is an old mate of mine. Yeah. And I saw that he was actually such a fan. This surprised me that he got you to present a Mojo Award to him for an That's album. That's right. And because uh, I just texted him last night. And I said, oh, I see you're a Tull fan. And he said, fuck yes, Tull are the best. One of the few Brit prog bands I listen to regularly. Outrageous, politically dubious, obscene. They went places no band has ever gone, let alone having a flute as a principal instrument. Ian Anderson's vocal style was something to behold and a formidable songwriter. I saw them in Melbourne in the mid-70s and they blew my mind. Wow. And to think that I, I, I spent two hours yesterday writing a new biography for the new album. All I had to do was wait till you told me this. And, yeah, and I'll send you next text. There you, go. <laughs> you deserve it all, Ian. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was, that was an absolute joy. 
Thank yeah, well, you I'm, so, I'm, so I'm much. sorry I've talked far too long, and I'm sure we, you've got better we, things we to do. It. No such thing. Take care. That was uh, incredibly long and amazing, and we covered very little ground. I know, I felt really, you know, hardly any of his career, because he's made so many records, hasn't he, as well? And uh... Well, it's never stopped. If you look, it's one of those people, there's no kind of peaks and tracks. It just started, and he's just gone. Endlessly, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a real honour to talk to him. I mean, such a, a, a legend and a unique man. I mean, he's not like he doesn't follow any of the cliches of rock and roll, does he? At all, no. And a, an incredibly articulate and erudite man like, as well. Like yourself, like yourself. Well, I didn't want to say anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's that's all from us. Then. Yeah, it's good to be back. You know, we're all we're all firing now, aren't we? We We've are all firing. Coming up next week. The new season is here. Oh, yes, oh gosh, my God, yeah, it's this is the season premiere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Rock on Tour's fall season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll be seeing you next week with another great artist. Until then, it's good night from me. And good night from her. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.